From Miami Law, I'm Annette Uges, and this is The Explainer. We tend to think of social problems as only being answerable through legal solutions. And what we sometimes forget is that private organizations and private businesses have a tremendous amount of influence on public discourse and on policies. Welcome to a bonus episode of The Explainer, the legal affairs show where we talk with experts who add context to the headlines. On this episode, we tackle the gun debate. In the aftermath of the Parkland School shooting, Dick's Sporting Goods announced it would stop selling assault rifles, high-capacity magazines, and bum stocks. Levi Strauss committed to $1 million in support of nonprofits and youth activists working to end gun violence. The healthcare colossal Aetna stopped donating to politicians that received an NRA rating of B or better. And last week, Salesforce, the business software giant, instituted a policy barring its retail customers from using its e-commerce software to sell military-style assault weapons. Joining us today, Marianne Franks, perhaps best known for her national campaign to criminalize non-consensual pornography, has tackled what she calls fundamentalism about the First and Second Amendments in her new book, The Cult of the Constitution, Our Deadly Devotion to Guns and Free Speech. Let's go to executive producer Catherine Skip with the interview. Good morning, Marianne. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. Okay, even though it's not probably well known to the average shopper, Salesforce is the dominant provider of software and services helping businesses manage their customers. So changing to another provider would cost those companies millions. Does Salesforce policy or similar ones instituted by other private companies violate the right to bear arms in any way? In a word, no. The Second Amendment, just like all the other rights that are protected in the Bill of Rights, are basically restrictions upon the government. So this is known as the state action doctrine, which means that it's possible that when the government does certain things that might in some way restrict someone's right to bear arms, that could be a Second Amendment issue. But when a private company does it, no, it's not a matter of constitutional significance. So why do people believe there's a Second Amendment issue here? This is something we're saying more and more of, and this is something that I try to address in my book, which is this kind of constitutionalization of conflict. So there obviously have been controversies and disagreements among the American public over issues like guns and the nature of communication and free speech and all of those things for a long time. But what we've seen in recent years is that people want to say, instead of, I disagree with you, or I think that maybe there's a different way forward, People now want to say, no, you're violating my constitutional rights. And this has become a very popular message among the public. And part of that reason is because people don't really know that much about the Constitution. They think they do. Most people have a very intuitive grasp of what they think the Constitution actually means and what it protects. And so a lot of the sense of turning what is otherwise really a private sort of matter into a public constitutional matter is based on, for lack of a better term, constitutional illiteracy. And then you have powerful figures, powerful lobbyists who are taking advantage of the fact that people don't really know that much about the Constitution and are feeding them essentially a false line about how this isn't just about whether we disagree with each other about gun policy. This is a matter of constitutional import and your Second Amendment rights are being violated. Hmm. Kind of reminds me of the congressmen that haven't read the Mueller report. 
but I have a lot of ideas about it. Indeed. Um, your book drives home the point that there are those who interpret the Constitution both selectively and for their own purposes, especially when it comes to the Second Amendment and the First Amendment. And you argue that influential organizations such as the NRA and the ACLU play a big role in this. Is this Salesforce story a flip on the Colorado Baker? Well, that's a really interesting question. In keeping with this this idea of the constitutionalization of conflict, what my book tries to point out is that, yes, especially when it comes to Second Amendment issues and First Amendment issues, there are many powerful organizations, among them the NRA and the ACLU, that have it in their sort of best interest to promote this kind of panic about the First Amendment and the Second Amendment That is to say, to tell their members, to tell their followers that, you know, these rights that you care about and who doesn't care about things like freedom of speech or the right to defend yourself, that these rights are under attack at all times. And therefore, we need to be really concerned about the slippery slope that we're all heading down. So we're seeing that on the part of these big organizations that have a lot of influence. And we're really seeing it a lot when it comes to what we could call the conservative demographic. And what's so interesting about that is that the complaint that you hear from so many of the conservatives now is things like the Salesforce policy is a problem because these are companies that are taking away something that's really valuable to the American public. That's something that the American public is entitled to. But you see the flip of that when we look at things like the Masterpiece Cake Shop case. Now, the Supreme Court case was pretty complicated on this point, but when it comes to the public sense of what that case was about... When you listen to people who were in favor of what that bakery was doing, it was all couched in terms of, you know, as a private company, as a private business, you can do whatever you want. And it doesn't matter who you offend or whether someone thinks that it's a violation of their rights. And so you see how selective this is. You see at this kind of illumination of how self-interested this principle, right, of defending our constitutional rights really is. On the one hand, when it's a private business doing something you approve of, you say, well, that's their freedom. That's the free market at work. But if a private company does something you don't like, suddenly you say, well, that's actually a violation of constitutional rights. So it's an interesting example of the the double standard here. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're, we're seeing state legislatures and, and Congress completely stalled on gun reform ac- across the country. Are, are corporations filling that that void or or filling the gap on sensible gun reform? Well, the recent movement by these private companies to enter the space of gun reform or gun regulation, I think, does highlight something really important about the nature of law and the limitations of law. In other words, we tend to think of social problems as only being answerable through legal solutions. And what we sometimes forget is that private organizations and private businesses have a tremendous amount of influence on public discourse and on policies. And so what's so fascinating about these corporations' decision to take a stance on these issues is that it's reminding of this, that it doesn't have to necessarily be a legislative move. And it seems as though, at least for the time being, although after Parkland, we're seeing some movement, if there's going to be continued political cowardice on this issue, that there is an upside to the fact that corporations play such a huge role in our lives. They have tremendous amount of influence. And this could be seen as one of those moments where these corporations have decided to use that influence for good and to remind us that there's a lot of power in the way that we make decisions about where we shop, what we do with our our lifestyle habits that do not necessarily need to come from the legislators on high. 
And I think we have seen in a lot of these cases that it hasn't hurt their bottom line in the case of Nike, for instance. This is true. So what happens in some of these cases, no doubt, is that the corporation is making a fairly reasonable, rational decision to say there's an alignment here between our bottom line and what we think is the socially right thing to do. In other cases, though, it's pretty clear that these corporations are taking a risk. So some of the companies that did take a stance after Parkland, I believe Dick's Sporting Goods and a few of these other stores actually did take a hit when it came to some of their stock prices because there can be pushback, especially among certain heavily mobilized groups. We saw a lot of pushback against the airlines that decided to discontinue their NRA discounts and things of that nature. We even saw in Georgia, I believe it was, an attempt by the legislators there to punish Delta for its decision to discontinue that policy, which in itself raises First Amendment issues. So what's, again, uh, complicated and interesting about these choices that these corporations are making is that sometimes it's an example of interest convergence where they're really saying, well, both our profit and both our social conscience are aligning in some ways. But in other cases, they very well may not align. And that's really the moment to, I think, respect what some of these corporations are doing because they are aware that it's at least risky or even almost certainly negative for them to take the position that they've taken. Mm -hmm. Talking about market forces and social change, have we seen that kind of change happen before in the face of, of powerful political actors being opposed to it? I think we have. I mean, we, we're certainly seeing any number of examples of it right now. So if we think about the controversy over the Georgia abortion ban, you've got Netflix and Disney thinking about maybe whether they should continue to do business in Georgia. You've got policies like, like that of Target, for instance, if you think when it was 2016 or so when Target decides to go with gender neutral bathrooms. But looking further back in history, one of the examples that comes to my mind, actually, oddly enough, is the Sears catalog. So in the 1890s, the fact that there was this mail order catalog that Sears decided to roll out made it possible for African-Americans to get goods and services that they wouldn't have otherwise been able to get if they had to walk into a store and, and make their request. And so in this very subtle way, Sears was doing something quite radical, and it really did make it possible not only for African-Americans to um, retain a sense of dignity when they were purchasing the things that they needed but also was a matter of practical necessity, got them the clothes that they needed to have, the appliances that they needed, which probably did quite a lot to at least begin to erode some of the pressures of the Jim Crow era. Fascinating. Anything else we should talk about? In many ways, this is kind of an echo of something else that we're seeing in the news a lot, which is the sudden movement on the part of certain high-profile conservatives to call for regulation of the tech industry. Now, if we think about this historically, conservatives have usually championed this idea of the free market and that anytime someone wants to say a private company or some sort of business practice is unfair or maybe in some ways violates socially progressive values, the traditional conservative response has always been, that's just the market. You need to let the market do what it wants to do. So part of what's so fascinating about the controversy over Salesforce and the ongoing controversy over the sudden uh, enthusiasm for regulating tech is that it's it's flipping. Again, we now see that when conservatives don't feel as though the free market is so free for them, they're suddenly much more skeptical about the the virtue of these corporate actors being allowed to do whatever they want to do. So you have 20 years of progressive groups saying we need to be worried about the internet and about social media platforms because they are 
facilitating harassment or threats or defamation of marginalized groups, nothing from conservatives. But in the last couple of years, when people are making fun of politicians on Twitter, suddenly now it becomes something that high level politicians are saying, you know, maybe it's not so great that these social media companies aren't being regulated. So it is one of these really compelling illustrations of just how self-serving and how selective the invocation of principles like the First Amendment or the Second Amendment or free trade, how all of those really do at the end of the day, in many cases, come down to self-interest. Mm-hmm. Um, all these companies that have gotten involved in weighing in on the, on the gun, de- gun debate, Walmart, uh, Dick's Sporting Goods, Levi's, Salesforce feels like it's, it's taken this to a different level and has their hands in a lot of other issues. I think that's right. As a, as a company, Salesforce has taken positions like this before, which are really interesting. The CEO is very politically active. He's very active as a philanthropist. And his position has been in the past has been to take some pretty interesting stances against what he perceives as troubling policies. So, for instance, he has taken action when there was legislation in Indiana that would have made it possible to discriminate against LGBT individuals. He did something similar with Georgia. So he has used his power and his influence as the CEO of this incredibly powerful company to take a stand and say, we don't support policies and practices and laws that might discriminate against marginalized groups. Even within his own company, he's done some pretty radical things. That's exactly right. He was one of the few, uh, I think, CEOs to say, we really care, for instance, about the equal pay issue. And so he took a very hard look at his own company's practices when it comes to equal pay for equal work. And that's something we haven't seen from a lot of companies. Hmm. Well, and he's in the catbird seat because there's no real competition to what Salesforce has to offer. And it's so expensive to change. This is also really important because we sometimes see these very noble stances by other companies that simply don't have that kind of influence. Salesforce is massively influential. And as we've seen with the pushback when it comes to the the gun regulations issue, there are many Uh, providers of goods and services who are saying we're really in trouble if we have to switch out after, after these policies have been put in place, because it's really difficult to find a new um, CRM. So this is something that really will have a real impact in a way that lots of other companies could not go Salesforce, go Salesforce. Well, thanks Marianne. I know we'll have you back next season talking about the second and first amendment. Marvelous. Thank you so much for having me. Anytime. Thanks for joining us at The Explainer. If you like the show, leave us a five-star review with your podcast provider and ask your friends to subscribe. You can always drop us a comment at explainer at miami.edu. Our show is engineered and edited by Christopher Alzadi with theme music composed by Ray D. Kim from the Frost School of Music. I'm your host, Annette Uguez. Today's show was brought to you by Miami Law's graduate program in taxation that focuses on building a better tax lawyer who develops the tax sense necessary to resolve tax problems with confidence and brings the region's diverse perspectives and career-building opportunities to students. For more information, visit law.miami.edu backslash tax.